Welcome to Birth Stories in Color, a podcast creating community for people of color to share and learn from birth stories of all types. We're your hosts, Laurel Gurrier and Danielle Jackson. Today's episode features Gabrielle Burks. When asked to describe her birth in three to four sentences, the one line that really summed up her experience was, our story is to remind all moms to stay the course, work your journey, and push back when medical practitioners say no. There are so many layers to her journey that bring to light the many aspects and paths birth and parenthood can lead us on, and we are looking forward to hearing this story um, and having you all connect with it. So with that, hello, Gabrielle. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you, ladies. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. Um, love getting story submissions, but read through yours, and I was like, oh. this is this is um yeah i'm not even gonna spoil anything (laughs) okay well can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your family yes so i am uh, currently in st louis i've been here for about nine years i have a nine-year-old daughter and um Kojo, which is the birth story that I'm talking about today, he is six months, um, and uh, my fiance lives here with me as well. So um, we're re- originally from Chicago. So uh, yeah, and that's pretty much all the family we have here in St. Louis. Um, everybody else is back home in Chicago and uh, Carbondale. So that makes the support system a little um, untraditional sometimes. That you know we were kind of the only ones here. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your pregnancy? Yeah. So, um, let me see what, where should I start? I think that, so with my first daughter, it was nine years ago and I'm 30. So I was, you know, much younger and I think I just, I didn't prepare. And and when we think about like, um, you know, being really conscious about our bodies, that wasn't really um, where I was. And I don't think it was on trend either. Um, for somebody that's 21 at that time. And so being 30 or 29 at the time, when we found out we were expecting, I took uh, a nine-week, very extensive birth class. It was three hours a week uh, where you and your partner had to attend um, together. So we did that for nine weeks. Uh, We found a doula. We went to uh, visit several different hospitals. And I think that my preparation was around the fact that I, I don't, believe in Western medicine um, in, in a catch-all. And, and I knew that I wanted to be as safe as possible, but as far away as I could from, um, from interventions. And so we went with a birthing center, um, a doula, um, and the birthing center was in the hospital. So that was the thing that, yes, it's a birth center, but it's not really truly, you know, kind of like its own entity. Mm-hmm. Um, also before that, which I think that God just works in a divine way, we had planned um, for about seven months of our pregnancy to birth at home. Mm. We paid, we were paying $4,000 for a midwife to come in. And I would say, so I'm seven months pregnant. I get a, eat a call that says, Hey, I just realized from the midwife that they were going to, that was going to be at home. She said, I just realized that, uh, I'm going to be out of the country when you're birthing. I'm like, we've been planning this for seven months with you. How, how did you? And so that just took a a turn, right? Because that was seven months of it. And so not that we were rushed, but we did have a different um, plan. And so then we went with the birth center and we took the nine week uh, class with a different institution and, you know, felt, felt really prepared. In fact, I remember one of the questions um, 
with a nine-week class, she wanted us to be really introspective on one of the last days. And she said, she asked the whole group, what would happen if your birth story didn't go as planned? And, and we, we had to answer them separately, me and my fiance. And we both wrote the almost exact same thing. That's not an option. It's not going to happen. We're going to have a perfect, like, we didn't even like think, like, let's think through. And I remember her looking at it like, you know, the, the, the instructor, like, yeah. okay, you know. Um, <laughs> and we were the only ones in the whole class that something happened, you know. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? But we, we didn't even, it wasn't even an option that something bad would happen. It's never happened to any of our previous families, any friends. And so, yeah, that, that's how we prepared, almost like blindly. Uh, but I felt like we were, you know, on the right track. But bad wasn't an option. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm wondering, so this, this intensive birth, birth course, you know, um, can you talk a little bit about what was, um, provided in that? I don't, I don't think that we, you know, you, you have the hospital courses and they're like, okay, you can do one full Saturday or you can do, um, break it up in pieces, but you know, yours being so intensive, what were some aspects of it? What did it look like? And then what were some aspects that you really, really found helpful? Yeah. So, um, she was, she's probably the most passionate person I've ever met in my life about birth in any capacity. She really, uh, gave us a lot of tactics for practitioners that would say, you have to have a C-section now. We have to do, you know, administer a drug. We have, this is what, and so she gave us a lot of practical things like, is this an emergency? Right. Mm. I want you to show me on paper where this is an emergency or I want you to put this in my file that you've said that this is a medical emergency. And then we and then she defined what that means because we can use that. Right. And then they oh well, it's almost an emergency. So my baby is almost about to die because that was the only time um, how we defined it in the class was a death. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we had a lot of that language. I birthed for about 10 hours and before C-section. And I would say about three the last three hours was this language that she used. And again, like God is, is, is beyond good. I kid you not. The lady who did our nine week class as I'm being wheeled into my room is standing right there. She's not a part of my birthday. I was like, what are you doing here? She was like, I'm here for another birth. So she was on site. And so we were able to call her and bring her into the space. And so, um, you know, later on she got, you know, threatened to be lawsuit by the, you know, it's, it's a whole thing. But, um, yeah, so a lot of the language is really uh, practical. She talks about, you know, breathing, um, you know, water versus bed, you know, how to yeah. But I said a lot of it was, looking back, a lot of it was how to say yes and how to say no. Got it. And, and being really confident in it. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. And that's what, I mean, when we think about, you know, doing childbirth ed classes, you want to do the comfort measures. You want to do... Um, the stages of labor, what to expect as you're moving through the process of birth. But I think it's so key, like to have someone talk you through the type of language that is going to be used in that birthing space. How do you navigate all of that? Um, and right. as doulas, like we, we try to inform our, our families about that, but it's wonderful to hear that there are, you know, classes and, that are able to do that because that's a really big key of being able to advocate for yourself as well is how do I navigate all this stuff that I'm not, my typical day does not include what is a medical emergency. Sure. Right. You know? Right. Right. And certainly thinking about, um, these words, like you said, the language being used, um, and how that affects you in the moment, you know, and if you've had the time to practice it over and over, 
um, and what the common interventions actually are. And you see how common it is and that it's so common it becomes routine and it's not always necessary. Yes. Yeah. It prepped us so much that when we went to go, so now we're, so the, the seven months is over. We're in our last few months. And so we're looking at uh, OBGYNs and we talked to an OB and we had questions written down from class. And we said, you know, on your last, I would have never thought to ask in your last 50 births, how many did you intervene? Right. And so we asked those questions and she was like, I really like you guys, but let me tell you something. The, the reason why C-sections, cause she was a, you know, high C-section, you know, a practitioner. And she said, the reason why C-sections are so high is so, it's because we're protecting ourselves. She said, it has nothing to do with the climate, what's changing. Mm. And she said, we were getting sued out the wazoo. And so now this is a measure for us. And she said that, and this wow. was OB. And she said, you know, I'll do wow. the best that I can, but, um, cause we were asking, and, and my fiance is, um, I mean, he's six, four, 220 pounds. So, <laughs> um, I think he gets responses, uh, more fluid than I do. Sometimes they're like, mm. Oh, whatever. And with him, they're like, well, let me tell you everything. And so <laughs> facts, um, you know what he was asking really good questions. Like, why is this a thing? And in particular in the African-American community. And so, uh, yeah, she talked about being sued, you know, in the 80s and the 90s. She talked yeah. about, um, we didn't go with her. She's never had a baby herself. It was just really weird things that we would have never thought to ask. Do you have any children? She was like, I don't. I've never had a child, but I've delivered. Th- it makes a difference, right? And yeah. so that you've experienced birth. And so, but for her to tell us that, that class prepped us for conversations like that. Because we would have went with the best person with the best review on Yelp or, or Google, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of tactics and language sharing. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. let's, before we go into your, your, your birth story, you said that you had planned on having a home birth and then mm-hmm. that got shifted. Um, how, like, how, what was the plan of action with, with your home birth midwife about, like, was there an opportunity for her to be like, hey, I have someone else to do a home birth? Or were you guys just like, no, we're not even going to do that. Let's just go to the, like, deal with the birth center at this point. Yeah. So I was super pissed that she called me, um, you know, two months before I was going to go in labor and say that she wasn't doing it. She is the only black midwife in the entire state of Missouri. Mm. So we, we really wanted it to be uh, a black woman. We really liked her story. Again, we researched her. She's had four babies, two C-sections, and the last two were at home, V back by herself. Um, and so we, we, we believed in her ability to, to do it, you know, with me. So she said, she did say, you know, I have somebody else, but everybody else is going to be white. And so um, I, I personally, you know, don't, I don't have any interest in, in paying a white woman $4,000. I might as well just go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's, I just, for me, and it was about a comfort yeah. thing. Yeah. Thing. yeah. It's about, you know what I'm saying? When I say damn, you know that I just mean damn and not me. It's a, you know, something else. And so, yeah. Um, yeah so I, we chose to go with the birth center because they had, I'm sorry, there's two black midwives. One at the birth center. She cannot do any births outside of the center. Got it. And one that does independent. And so we knew that there was one at the birth center. So we said, well, let's try our chances and go there. Got it. So, so that was the choice. Understood. Understood. Um, so with that, can you tell us about your birth? Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's see. So like I said, we, have, we were birthing for about 10 hours. I think that um, everything was going 
I believe is normal as it should. Uh, and we got a, they were doing the, um, to see how dilated I was, you know, every few hours. And it was progressing, I, I'm assuming pretty normal, six centimeters here, seven here, eight here. Um, but the biggest thing was that, uh, my water did break. The biggest thing was that um, they felt like um, the baby wasn't moving down pro properly. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time that day, they rolled in um, the machine to look at the baby. The um, ultrasound. Ultrasound machine. And so he was, he was breech. And so we, they didn't check me when I got there. I don't know if that was standard for some places, some for not. Um, they didn't check to see if he was breech before. We got, even of my uh, last appointments, they didn't check, you know, up until the nine months. So we were birthing a breech baby. And so at this point, we now know that he's breech. So we are uh, saying we're moving forward with breech. Um, the midwife that was on duty, cause they do it based off of duty, not based off who you want mm -hmm. was, uh, very, um, cold. And I would say throughout the 10 hours of birthing, she may have came to my room twice, um, to check on me. Um, but otherwise it was, you know, brand, my fiance and the doula. And so she came in the room and, and did the, the ultrasound, the baby is breached and she said, you know, we we're going to have to have a C-section. And so, you know, me and my fiance were like, absolutely not. We're going to, you know, birth. We we believe that um, he's going to be healthy if we just continue to birth this way. And so, of course, they did what you can expect. They called, this was maybe at 11 o'clock at night. They called um, an OB uh, who birthed previous breech babies. Mm -hmm. And we got this language from birthing class. We didn't know to say, if your baby is breech, you need to find an OB in their system that, that births breech babies, like someone right. does. And so, um, and so we called her. She got out of bed, came down, and said, I can birth this baby. And then she began to describe what could happen. Um, you know, the, if, we, if we come out the wrong way, the vagina could, you know, latch around the neck mm -hmm. and suffocate him. And, and so, um, you know, I looked at my mom. My mom had drove up. His mom was there. And I said, well, mom, what should, you know, what should I do? And she said, I believe that Kojo, which is my son's name, Kojo has made the choice. He has to be born C-section. You can't. And my last daughter was C-section as well. So I kind of knew it. that process versus being a breach. I don't really know. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we began to um, go down the route of, of C-section. We went into the, the room. Everything seemed pretty normal. I think looking back, it's important for me to always say some of the things um, that happened in the in the rooms and so one nurse in particular was uh, a white girl she was very very nervous i'm birthing is normal i'm nothing's happening uh very nervous almost shaking um mm -hmm. so and, and just really insecure about almost everything just putting the you know the monitors on my stomach just shaking yeah. like what you know and so she reported that um you know as we look back on our medical records that my that my fiance was aggressive he told her to leave off i mean stuff that just never happened yeah and so we have her in the space that uh that i was like nervous and dropped the ball several times throughout the the 10 hours of birthing on small things so once we had him as they began to surgically you know remove him um they're talking about 
the surgeons are there's maybe six or seven people they're talking about uh a reality show wow. like a tv show during during cutting me open i'm not you know, it was i i i heard them talking oh did you see the show and i, I just thought I was so tired, guys. I was like, I am utterly exhausted. But in my spirit said, say something. And I couldn't even muster up. Can you finish this conversation after you're done? I would like my baby to come in quiet or music playing or what, you know. And yeah. they, they just kept, you know, going. And, I, and that was on me. You know, I, did, I, I didn't have the energy. And so anyway, and no one else said anything. So he, he got here and um, took pictures. We took pictures. He's here now. They sold me back up. Everything's fine. Um, they willed me into the first recovery room. Um, and I, I have him to my left and my, my fiance hands him to me and I have him to my left and it's over. The, the, the hype of the night is over. Uh, my mother-in-law, my mom go to the cafeteria. Everybody's kind of le leaving out the room and Brandon says, he's not breathing. And I was like, oh, he's just asleep because he was very, you know, limp. I took his hair. I'm grateful for my daughter who, you know, is, is healthy and didn't have any problems. She came out like this, very tight. Mm -hmm. When Kojo came out, he came out, arms flapping back, almost like he was already dead when he came out my womb. And they said, here he is. And his arms were just flapping. And I thought, that is so weird, you know, but I, I haven't experienced a ton of births. And so eventually he kind of came in a little bit more, but when he laid here on my left side, it was the same limpness. And so I said, he's, you know, he's just sleeping. I thought maybe he was just, you know, more floppy. And um, he looked at, he said it again. He said, he's not breathing. And so when he picked him up, it was that same when he was born, just lifeless. Mm -hmm. um, no tone or anything, no muscle. And he, he ran out of the room and said, my son isn't breathing. Probably to that same, you know, amount of fear. My son isn't breathing. It wasn't very loud. Later, we found out that they recorded it in the medical records. The father must have done something because he wasn't alarmed. That's what a nurse put in the medical records because he simply said, my son isn't breathing to the outside, you know, room. And so they all rushed in the room. Again, I still think, I'm not even thinking he's dead. I'm like, there's, again, there was no way. We wrote in our notes, right? There's no way something bad's going to happen. And, um, then when six, seven, eight, nine, ten doctors came on and they sound the alarms, I was like, okay. And then I saw Brandon begin to loot, like almost leave his body. I looked at him because the baby is to my left and they're putting him in the incubator and they're, you know, trying to get him back to life. And I said, say my son is alive. And, and I don't even know what made me say this because I wasn't, I don't remember being, you know, really present. I said, say my son is alive. He said, my son is, my son is alive. I said, say my son is healthy. He said, my son, my son is healthy. I said, say my son is alive. And I did that for over and over and over until the nurse squeezed my hand and said, we got him, mom. He's, we got him back breathing. He's fine. You know, she, she was over here talking to me and I was just, you know, ministering, you know, almost to him. Just, again, I believe that was a God thing because I was supposed to probably lose my mind in that moment. And, um, they willed him out. And a doctor walked back in and said, uh, your, your son stopped breathing. His heart stopped for several moments. Um, we don't know what that means. And, and if I had to, you know, guess, he's not going to make it through the night. This, he's not going to, there's, he's not going to make it. He's lost too much oxygen to his brain. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so 
I said, tell me your name. And he, he said his name. And I said, do you believe in God? He said, I do. I do believe in God. I said, I need you to pray, for, pray with me. And everybody, by this time, the moms are back in the room and we began to pray. And again, I know that that was a, it, it was ordained because not that I wouldn't move in that way, but just to be that quick and saying yeah. and affirmate, like, that's not really, I'm not that quick. I'm really, uh, <laughs> I believe more reserved and not, not as sharp. Yeah. And so I was really sharp with, with, um, with the space. And so he, uh, he prayed and he walked out. And the next time we saw, we saw Kojo, he was completely, um, you couldn't see any skin. He was completely covered in gauze, almost mummified. Mm-hmm. Uh, and put on a cooling blanket to the um, almost frozen. So they, they do like this frozen, if you guys haven't heard of it, uh, practice or, or, or this technology and you lay the baby on and it freezes out any damage that's supposed to be done to the brain. Mm-hmm. But he was frozen, uh, mummified and frozen for three days. Um, and still, you know, being ran and by the monitors. And so we ended up... Um, being in the NICU for two months. And I think that that was the biggest, the NICU where we were was the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to me more than what I just told you guys. Yeah. Because the implicit bias, the flat out racism, the flat out gauging what type of people we are, where do you work? And so my, my husband, my fiance is a professor and they were like a professor. I mean, it was just like, yeah, we, we also sing and dance. You know, it's like, what is that? I mean, almost every nurse that came in, where do you work? Where do you work? What do you do for a living? Um, where do you live? So there's St. Louis is very clicky. And so there's certain areas, I'm sure, and everywhere where, the, you know, higher, uh, richer folk. And we live in that area. I don't know how we got this place, but we do. <laughs> so we live in that area and we got that question daily. Where do you live? Where do you work? And, uh, and um, we, we began to experience um, the, the, the biggest thing is that implicit bias. Um, and so we had to do a really good job of recording all of the conversations. Yeah. Um, we had to do a really good job of asking why. We had to do a really good job of saying, we're going to give him these 17 drugs and we think one is going to work. And we said, no, you're going to tell us what the drugs are. You're going to tell us what the after, you know, the effects are, what the studies are. And so just are any of these drugs in emergency right now? Well, no. Well then give us a few days. And so we just became, um, research fanatics. We actually lived at the NICU, um, because we didn't trust that system. And eventually I'm just reaching out to people. People say, you need to leave that hospital. You need to leave that hospital. And so eventually I called, uh, the head doctor in at the time. And, um, well, actually the two days before this, we, um, we had a family meeting with, maybe six or seven doctors. And um, he was due to leave the day, the next day. So this is a Thursday. He's due to leave the day. And they said, uh, you know, we, we don't feel comfortable releasing him to you. And so what does that mean? And they said, uh, you know, dad is on record several times of uh, being aggressive and, and, and DCFS comes in and we're like, and so they're like, if you try to take this baby, um, so they, they pulled our, our release date, which is the next day. Um, the state is going to be involved and we'll have custody. We had never yelled. We had never cursed. We had never, I'm very aware of systematic racism. And I believe that the medical field is at the top. And so um, 
through 60 days of being there, we did not see one black nurse, one black practitioner. Everybody that was black was cleaning the floors and at the cafeteria. And so uh, we're not going to release this baby to you. DCFS is here. And if, you know, if you try to move forward, we're, we're going to get full custody. And we record that conversation. We ask questions like, why do you feel so more invested in our son than, than you think we are? And they, it was no facts. It was just, um, they kept saying things like, he's going to be, he's a very sick baby. He's going to have a very hard life. And I would say things back, he's a black boy. He already going to have a hard life. And then they would take notes and say, mom seems so distant from what the reality of what's going on. And they would say things like, um, you know, you, he needs 24 hour care. Uh, you need to have a nurse at home. We work from home. So my, my fiance drives to Iowa for work two days out the week. Yeah. Other than that, I'm at home and we also homeschool. So we already are a home-based family. And so, um, well, we need to know that you're a home-based family. Well, what does that look like? And, and the last parent you said that to, what did they show you? Have you ever said you need to know that somebody is a home-based family? Why would I lie to you to risk his life? You don't mean that much to me. And so we would start to have these very hard and candid conversations. And that's when they call DCFS, never yelling, never cursing, very poised, talking about God a lot. And so they called me, um, you know, removed from reality, very close to schizophrenic language when I, I just talk just like this. Mm -hmm. But when you don't have people like you in the space, when we say very you know, gaudy statements like, oh, that's never going to happen, or, um, oh, he's good. That to them is black or white. And for us, it's kind of like, it's our language. You know what I mean? It's just, it's kind of like almost hip hop and teaching. It's like, oh, we good like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that was really hard breaking through those barriers um, of, of language. And so the next day I called them, one of the doctors back into the space and I, and I sat him down and I said, Your, the way you have handled my family is utterly disgusting. I said, it was up to me, you wouldn't touch another child. You are uh, not only just removed from, from uh, not just faith, but removed from uh, passion and compassion that is, is literally killing people. You literally have put pain on my life. I said, I wouldn't trust you with a baby hermit. You are the worst person. I mean, I just went off. I said, I don't want you to ever touch my son again. I want him out of this institution tomorrow. And he said, oh, we can do that today. I said, even better. Now you can leave. I never want to see you again. You're a horrible person because his, and the reason why I was so, keep in mind, this is 60 days worth of fight and no, we're not doing that. Or yes, we're doing this. Or you guys aren't being realistic. You don't understand how hard it's going to be. Um, you know, if, if we don't get this right, he's going to die in six months. So he wasn't supposed to make it to six months. Um, you know, if he gets sick, he's going to die. I mean, it was just like, he's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to die. But so to get that for 60 days, I just cracked. I said, you have poured down the worst news ever, you know, from, from the beginning to the end. And so, um, we started calling around to other hospitals and within 24 hours, we had him moved to uh, another hospital. When he got to that hospital, it wasn't an hour. Several doctors had seen him. They said, why, they kept saying, why wouldn't they let you go home? We don't understand. This baby needs nothing that we can give him. This mm -hmm. baby needs nothing. Did he have a G-tube where he's fed on the tube? That was it. There was no seizures on record in any of his files. They pulled from day one up until when they got to the new hospital. They're like, we can't find 
any seizures. We can't find any times it's hard to stop outside of the first episode. Mm-hmm. We can't figure out why they didn't let you go home. And they kept saying it and they kept saying it. So we'd stayed there for two weeks and they were like, we're literally making you stay here because we feel like we've missed something. Like we don't understand why you're not already home. And so the biggest thing was that he doesn't swallow. And so the first hospital said, well, if he doesn't swallow, he's going to suffocate and die. No other options. He's going to suffocate and die. He hasn't, right? And there's no even chances of that happening um, or, or fears of that ever happening in our, you know, in our lives since, in, since he's been home. And so it's, it's, like I said, the biggest thing is pushing back on language, recording everything, um, asking them to say it a different way, um, saying no to certain drugs. You know, we are unrealistic for saying no to just, I mean, I would probably say hundreds of drugs um, for two months. And so I think my biggest thing I really wanted to share was that, um, you know, really moving by your spirit, really, really feeling really comfortable and saying no. And I think that oftentimes in white spaces, you know, we, we kind of go with the flow because we're like, well, we don't want to. And, and just standing on your standing on your intuition and and that's it. And not having to uh, justify it. There was a time where a surgeon walked in and said, we want to give him. Uh, a fundoplication, which is another surgery on his stomach. And then we want to put a trach in his throat. I said, why, why does he need a trach in his throat? Well, you know, for kids like Kojo, it's going to be really hard for him to, and it was never anything, life or death, right? It was just surgery after surgery. And um, when we went to the second hospital, it was just awesome to, to look at apples for apples. They said we would, ne- I didn't even tell them that. They said we would, just so you know, we would never give this kid a trach. He doesn't need a trach. And so we would have said, said, yes, yes, yes. Our son, not only would he have been there, you know, much longer, he would have just came out with so much more things to heal from. Um, so yeah, that, that was the, the, the birth. And then that NICU stay, um, which I said was the most, was much more traumatic than him not breathing, you know, on me. Yeah. Biggest part was getting over that. I think, you know, I, I, I have a lot of thoughts, but the first thing that came to mind was to be like, how are you? Because in so much of that, you had to step outside of your body, your, the actual process of you birthing to then become the full, with your, with your fiance, the full advocate of making sure your son was okay. Mm-hmm. And I think about your healing mm-hmm. from all of that. Um, so that's my first question. How are you? How, how, are, how are you both emotionally and physically from, from that? Um, I think physically I'm you know, pretty good. I think emotionally uh, I did have to go on the back burner um, for, the, for those 60 days. Um, the good thing about... I guess the type of person that I am or where I was is I was already, I'm already an advocate for therapy. So I already had a therapist, a talk therapist. I've already done um, light therapy just from past stuff. So I already had those tools to call upon. Um, and then telling the story allows people to say, I don't know if this is stepping on your toes, but I think you should try this. And so I had people say um, for Kojo, try energy therapy mm. and try uh a somatic therapy. And through that process, I'm sharing with my talk therapist and we began to do 
therapy where she would um, take me back to, particularly we're trying to heal right now from the hours from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Because that's when, it, that was a turning point of the story or of the, of the day. And so, in fact, it's so much of a turning point that my son is, when we talk about he's in acupuncture too, his meridians right at those times are totally locked up. So right now from one to four, if I go downstairs, if you touch his arms, it's just for, for the entire time. He, he's not in his body. He's like frozen and crying every day from one to four. And it was so um, clear after like the first couple of weeks, I said, something is happening. And I started time one to four, one to four. And then um, his energy therapist said, well, Gabby, what happened at his birth from one to four? And I was like, holy sh, I, I wouldn't even thought of that. And so I took that information to my th talk therapist and said, can we go through that birth with me from one to four? And so that's been really, really, really helpful. Um, sharing the story um, as well. Um, and I think that hopefully it's not too cryptic, but I see my son 100% healed. And I, I need to say that, but I need to also say the piece that if I see something, then it already happened. That's the type of person that I am. That's how I manifest things. It's just mm -hmm. my whole life. I'd be like, Oh, I see me doing this. And then it would happen. And so I see him 100% healed in my dreams in real life. I don't have a fear. And so I think I'm living fearless um, of the future and just incredibly, incredibly blessed. He still has um, just therapies for the most part. Yeah. Um, I still go to therapy. Running is really good for me. Um, and I'm also being, I'm, I'm just an introspective person. So here lately I wrote, what, is, what, what brings you joy? What makes you happy? And so like for me, something super simple, like going to a coffee shop every day and writing. So I, I write a lot of articles um, for different magazines. And so just like going away and writing. And um, so I put that in my routine because, again, we're homebodies. We're, we work from home. So um, that has uh, done, done a world of difference to talk therapy, um, being specific around those hours, and then just doing something that makes me happy daily. Yeah. You know, it's, it's your story touches on just the reality of our experiences as, as black people of having to juggle how we, how we are perceived in institutions in systems in places on a constant basis. Um, how just the presence of your husband came off as aggressive. Yep. All every day. Every other day, because we would pull his records consistently. I think the other thing that was healing for me, if I can add, mm -hmm. when you ask how I'm doing, my mom said a long time ago that one of my passions is justice. Um, again, I'm here in St. Louis, so I fought in Ferguson. We've shut down streets and schools and, and City Hall and so forth. And so I had to figure out a way to make sure that his story was told, but also that people paid if they were wrong. And so we're still on that journey. Yeah. But also one thing that I learned in birthing class and, and from talking to people, I filed complaints with every single institution that monitors hospitals and told his story over and over again. When we left that particular hospital that birthed him, we owed well over $100,000. They've waived all of those fees. And we're still talking to lawyers because 
the other part of the story that I didn't tell was the lady that we did the nine week birth class with, she did my placenta encapsulations. Mm -hmm. So right from birth, she has my placenta. As I'm in the NICU, she's calling me and calling me. I'm like, why does she keep calling? Eventually I answer weeks later, three weeks, four weeks later. She said, she doesn't know I'm in the NICU. She said, hey, how are you doing? And I say, well, you know, we never made it at the hospital. And she said, Gabby, I've been trying to call you when I got your placenta. And I said, what happened? And she said, I pulled your placenta out of the canister and it's completely mangled and shredded. I said, well, I don't know how it's supposed to look. I said, what do you mean? She said, I need you to know that I've been doing placenta encapsulations for decades. I've never seen a placenta like yours. Oh, wait, I've seen one other ladies like yours and she ended up in the NICU for two months. I said, I'm in the NICU. She said, you need to contact a lawyer immediately. After that conversation, we talked to the brain, the neurologist. How could this happen? How could, his, how could he stop breathing? He said, if the placenta was cut during pulling out the baby, he would die. And that's what happened. And so we have this third party that does placenta encapsulations that didn't know what happened that, you know, mm -hmm. they cut this placenta. And so the, the, when I told you they were talking about a reality show, just the un, um, lack of care. You know, they're like yes. hanging out, literally hanging. I mean, they were laughing as they're, you yes. know, sewing me up and everything. And so, um, but that justice part is huge. We just got the letter that they waived all of that um, for us. Well, not for us, but, you know, yeah, we gave them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Jesus, that's the least you can do. I wasn't going to pay you a, uh, excuse me, I wasn't going to pay you anything. <laughs> you can go take that to the bank. I wouldn't pay any quarter. Yes. But uh, after yes. insurance, I'm not going to pay you $100,000 more. That's right. insane. Right. Um, so that justice piece was super important to me that um, I told the stories to other moms. Um, please, Jesus Christ, do not birth at this particular place. Um, I, I sent my letter, my story to every board member, um, contacted lawyers, uh, and then any institutions that on their websites and on their pages that said, you know, at a federal level, we monitor hospitals at a, you know, at a state level. Yeah. I sent it to everyone. Yes. So those complaints and then lack of care. And, you know, the record keeping that you did is like many, many of us don't even think that, you know, after we have our babies, we can get our records yep. or that we can ask for things to be put into our chart. I didn't learn that until my second child. Um, and so, you know, letting people know, like, those are yours. So you yep. can know exactly what happened in that space. So for you to have that, they were writing these things down in the chart. Um, that X, Y, and Z happened at this time is so important. And I think it also helps on the level of like, you know, I think with birth, like, you know, with birth, you're in and out. So you don't always remember everything, but you remember important parts. And I think some people sometimes feel like, well, no, that couldn't have happened or this didn't happen. And sometimes having your records really shows like what you felt in that time was real or like yeah. what that did. Or that's, that's part of your story. So I just think that that's, also a really important takeaway from your experience is like that is a like that is yours that is your um that's part of your experience to be able to have those and how important and key that was for you moving forward to get that justice yeah um, yep. but i just i mean it really it's just I think it's, you know, we say this is a resource for parents, but it, I think it's a resource in general of like what we experience is real. This happened. 
at a hospital that was supposed to take care of you. These are care providers who are trained to take care of you. Yep. And you did a lot of the work to be able, like that just, um, that is real and, and, and happening a lot of places. Yep. Um, so I just, yeah. And when you think and think about that and I'm hearing the word care provider, and for so many people out there that are doing birth work, whether you're an OB, a midwife, an L&D nurse, a doula, um, all these different spaces, are you giving care? What does care actually mean? You know, um, and I, I, our podcast does serve as a, a learning tool. It's a resource, but it's also not just for parents expecting. It is for people who are in these spaces working like you can listen to these stories and know that this stuff is true this is happening people are not making this up you know um it's very real and you have to just take on the charge am i a care provider Mm. what does that look like and and i um you know going you you and your your fiance being so prepared in that way to advocate like pushing back on things and and I want to say pushing back doesn't need to be I don't want it to be envisioned as like oh we're not going to do what the hospital said because it doesn't fall in line with what our vision is pushing back in a way that like it's consent care okay you're saying that my child needs all of these things I need specifics of how that works for my child with whatever is going on with them how does that mix what are the side effects I need to know everything you know as my care provider so I can make the best decision for me, my family, and my child. None of that means that I'm not taking what you're saying serious. None of that means that it's not important to me. It just means I want to be an involved participant in the care that we are receiving. Yep. That's it. And, And learning that in those first two months and then going to the next hospital before we even got started, before they touched, I said, let me be, and they had already, before we got there, they had already pulled our notes. And so in our, in our 400 pages of notes, there's things like parents record everything. Please be sure to make sure, just stuff like that. Or um, mom writes down everything. And, and so when they got the notes, when we got to the new hospital, they were like, um, I felt really empowered because they were like, we got your notes. And I'm like, perfect. I want to, you know, I said, I, I think the biggest thing as we move forward is that I'm, 100% a part of this team. And so I won't be, there won't be a shot done. There won't be a blood draw without me knowing first and without me knowing why. And so one time in the two weeks we were there, they drew his, um, I'm sorry, they gave him some sleeping medicine and it was a huge deal. And, uh, I was on my phone actually just scrolling. Cause she was telling me and I was trying not to snap out on her. And I was just scrolling like on Instagram. She's like, we actually, da 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 we gave him this, we gave him this, uh, this medicine. I'm really, really sorry. I just got the notes and we weren't supposed to do it without calling you first. And I'm just scrolling online and she, you know, over explains herself. And she says, um, you can, um, I, I know you like to research things so you can, you can look it up. Cause I see you researching. I said, who told you I was researching? Well, I see you on your phone. I said, I want to, I want to ask you who told you I like to research things. And she's like, cause she had read my file, but I was so, I was like, no, you're going to tell me, like, where did you learn that at? I just met you today. Oh, well, I know you like to research things. And so they never dropped the ball again. That, that hospital was absolutely phenomenal. 
um, and, and their care of, of our son and uh, the care of us, we were 100% in, included in, um, in everything but that one, you know, mistake that they yeah. made and they, and they owned it. And I, and I also wrote a complaint to them for that. Yeah. I was like, it matters. You know, it I, I told you, not, you put my baby to sleep and he's already on sleeping medicine. And then you gave him more medicine because you said, well, when we give him an MRI, he, he may move around. Wench, he is already in the incubator. I mean, how much more, let this man, you know, so um, that, that mattered. And it was important to me that I was diligent, even in their sorries. And I appreciate you saying sorry, but I am going to go ahead and, and put this on the record. You know, right. that I asked for something very simple, a phone call. I'm right here in the hospital. I'm probably downstairs. And you put him to 100% sleep for, right. for the rest of the day. He, they gave him so much. He couldn't wake up. It was, right. yeah. But, um, yeah, that advocating is, is no, is no joke. And you do have to heal afterwards, which is why, <laughs> you know, you have people that go really hard in, in certain movements and then you don't hear from them ever again. They just disappear. Yeah. Like, I just gave literally myself. Yes. Now I got to go, you know. Yes. Um, and so there's a piece that you talked about. You did have a doula. Um, and in your, your submission form, you indicated that, um, she had to sign an agreement with the hospital not to contact you. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? If you, if that's possible. Yeah. So, um, we hired her from the, the the birthing center. We, Mm -hmm. you know, we found her there. She was a, uh, LPN. Um, she wasn't midwife, so she was able to, to doula us and we really liked her, um, energy and everything. Uh, I can look back and say some things that I should have seen, but whatever. Um, uh, at the time we were happy, we were fine. Um, we had the birth. Um, there's actually a couple of things that she did in the birth when she handed me my son that I believe played a part of him losing, um, in, in getting us where we are now. But she, uh, Signed a, a um, NDA mm-hmm. with because she works there. So we're at the hospital mm-hmm. that she works at that she's a LPN at, but she's our doula. So this is conflict of interest, um, which is a huge mistake that we made. We should have got somebody that was independent. That was like, I'm only loyal to this infrastructure. This lady has to yeah. go to work on Monday, you know. And so it was kind of changed where her you know loyalty lied. And uh, yeah, she, so she signed an uh, NDA, and I actually found that out through the grapevine because the the lady that did the nine week class, which became like a God to us, she um, found out through somebody else that she signed this. And so I can call her right now. She won't answer. Uh, she's never responded to a text message. Once we became, got to the NICU, she came downstairs. Um, she was, she works upstairs and she came downstairs to the NICU um, maybe once, maybe twice. And you know, how are you guys doing? You know, I'm, I'm here if you need anything. And then, um, Lawyers started to get involved. Mm-hmm. We started getting calls from uh, the hospital board, the hospital directors. Uh, the lady for the nine-week class, she got a call from the directors of the hospital. The board wanted to speak with her. And we knew at that point that this particular doula had uh, disappeared because of all of this that was going on. She could lose her job right. or life. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so, yeah, we, we uh, I sent her a very, because she wouldn't answer the phone, obviously. And I don't think that it was, she was mad at me or anything. I think that she chose right. her, she chose her job. Right, right. And I sent her very, and I, and I know that it made a difference, a, a very long uh, letter about what I imagined when I met her, the expectation that I had for her, because I thought that was important to tell her. 
I would have never thought that you would, I would, I would personally never sign an NDA against a black, like in, in that situation, you know, you can never contact this person again. And, um, she was, uh, taken down from LPN. She's no longer LPN there. And she's now just, uh, like a parent educator. Mm-hmm. The director of center was also terminated maybe three or four weeks after I sent my first letter, she was terminated. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that doula is no longer, I'm sure maybe not even doula. I don't know if she even has it right at Got that it. hospital. But, Got it. Yeah. And I think it's important, like, you know, when you're looking for people to support you, there's so many levels of birth workers, you know, and, the, and, and within the systems, everything works in so many different ways. Like you have home birth midwives and it also, correct me if I'm wrong too, Danielle, within states, it also is different too. Like you have home birth midwives that can work in, right. in at, only at home. You have some who can do home births and then move into, if they have to do a transfer to a hospital, do that as well. So it's very tricky. And I think as, um, individuals who are building, when we're building our birth teams, also understanding that is really, really important too. Um, And I think from a level of a birth worker as well, understanding how your scope of practice shifts and what that looks like and your liability as well is really important. You know, Danielle and I are doulas. We are not midwives. And that's important (laughs) for people to understand. I'm not doing what a midwife does. I'm there you know, to support you on the other hand, um, you know, for us, we're not, you know, all about people having empowered unassisted births, but I'm not, we're not attending that because that's out of our scope. Um, so just being really careful about how all the layers of it. And I think both parties have to understand that both the birthing persons and the birth workers of how that impacts everything is really important. Um, I think that that's, so the director, she, when, you, when we talk about the impact and when I think about just having a high level of regard and expectation, I don't personally think the director, who's a white woman, would have done this to another white woman. She started to contact people I was in contact with on Facebook about me. That's why she got fired. I was like, this mm-hmm. wench is off the chain. So she was instant messaging saying, um, actually, we know a mutual person. Uh, giving them my name, it was just complete. I was like, this is against the law, you know? Um, and so that's, so people were sending me screenshots, different birth workers that, um, that I had followed, or I had been in contact with, but we're just trying to understand a little bit more about her. Keep in mind, I met, excuse me, I'm at the hospital. She could walk downstairs and she began to ask people within my circle of care on Facebook, instant messaging mm-hmm. them, um, including the lady I took the nine week class with. And so she was the one that sent, she sent her all of my information on Facebook, all of my information on Facebook. And so we were able to take the screenshots and submit that. And so she's, you know, I don't know if she can get another job, but that's just, I, th- I, be- I believe I saw so many times ladies, white women that were in NICU with me. And I would look across the hall for hours. I would watch and they had a completely different level of care. Oh, did you need it? I mean, it was stomach wrenching than I, than I ever had. Um, one lady, you know, baby went to NICU and, um, she had just birthed and they wheeled her down in her bed, like laying down and relaxing. I walked down to NICU and it was, it's a very after labor, after a C-section, I walked, they, no one, no nurses wheeled me. She was wheeled in by three or four nurses. They opened up the big doors. Hey, move out the way. 
to see her child and my son was on life support and they said, oh, we'll call you when he's, when you can come see him. Never called me. I called and said, can I come see, oh, you can come down. And I'll walk down to the NICU from, from the, uh, you know, took the elevator and then I walked mm-hmm. down the halls. No help, no assistance, nothing. And so I just saw time and time again, the lack of care for, um, for me versus, you know, essentially yeah. my counterparts. Yeah. It was, it was, and again, we see it on Facebook. I just, not a professional email, not a, let's have a meeting, a conference call. She was on right. Facebook. You know, we were trying to learn more about her and because of the situation, because you screwed up and they needed a place to blame somewhere. Right. Um, right. Right. So to be that sloppy was, it helps me um, with my cases, but. Right. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you for sharing. Thank you for your transparency. Thank you for. I, I, and I don't want to say taking the charge because I, I don't, uh, but I think thank you for being willing to um, put yourself forward because you're right. Like this isn't something we would want other, you wouldn't want other people to experience. And I think you being so, you and your fans being so vigilant and, and going so hard about it will make a difference, is making a difference because many people will have that experience and be like, I don't want to, I'm done. We don't, you know, like we did that. I put my, but not like all those complaints, all of those matter. Um, and the director you know, of diversity and inclusion, he stepped down. It, it was just like a trickle. We just continue to beat the drum because if this was happening at the low level with nurses and, you know, being um, very uh, passive aggressive, it's, it's at the top. Mm-hmm. And so we, we leaned on him and we leaned on, I mean, it was, it, it a lot of people left and, and got stepped and were stepped down. And again, that all, that all matters. But, um, thank you for you know saying thank you but i think i i'm always a person that says we go through things for other people mm-hmm. this life is not for me mm-hmm. this is i'm very selfless and and i believe in in trying to give and always be uh, a steward over what i have but also giving um as well and i believe i'm going i went through this and i'm still going through this for 50 other people mm-hmm. and so that's why when i find platforms like you guys i'm like if one person hears this and says, I'm going to take notes or I'm going to videotape this, or I'm going to uh, record this. Or when I, when we left our son's room, the times we'd had to leave, we would set up a camera for 20 bucks on Amazon, you know, like just, you know, we would six, seven, eight hours go by and nobody checked on him, you know? Right. So right. if right. you could do, if somebody for just that one person that would, you know, make a difference, um, then, then it's worth it. Right. Caring, caring is worth it. Right. And I also want to say too, like, cause you know, some people read into that as, oh, you're just trying to, you're trying to catch care providers doing bad things. And it's like, no, it's not about, um, being the pushback, being vigilant about checking in on what's happening. It's, it's not about like catch people, doing. it's holding people accountable because it's, it is easy. I, you know, we understand nurses and doctors work crazy hours. They're, it's high-pressure situations. Birth workers where, you know, being a care provider is a hard job, but I think sometimes you can fall into a rhythm and forget the humanity piece and just get into that rhythm of, like, this is, this is what this looks like. This is, it's all this. And forget that these are, like, people's experiences that you are involved with. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. every single one is different because it's somebody else's experience. 
And you want to make sure that they leave out of that feeling like it was sacred and valued and they were cared for. Mm-hmm. And you have to be held accountable to remember to do that consistently. And I think that it's important to know we didn't start off that way. You know, we didn't start right. off right. having an amazing right. experience. We came in time after time. His pampered is soiled. He's screaming. And so we said, how often do you guys come into the room? Oh, every 30 minutes. I have footage seven hours, you know, so no one's in the room. And so we come in and his, his pant, his, his bottom is completely raw. His skin is gone and it's just red and bumped up. So eventually, you know, we have to leave and come back. We have to homeschool. We come, you know, spend a night at the house, come back to the hospital. And so, you know, that, that makes a huge difference. It wasn't, it wasn't that we were looking for something is that you said something and I want to make sure it's true. Right. And, And unfortunately I can't give you the benefit of the doubt because um, of the history that we've had together for 60 days. And so eventually we started taking measures like that. Um, we started taking measures like we don't want this nurse back. We just want these two. Right. Mm -hmm. And being, and being able to know that you can say, I only want Sarah and Sue, you know, I I don't want any, what are their schedules? Um, on the other day I'll be here. And, um, that came from the journey. We didn't start off. Oh, we were trying to record these folks. Yeah. You know, we want to trust. I want to exhale. And then when you don't give me permission to exhale or, you know, there's no space for me to do that, then I have to go and go on guard. And so, um, if protection is prevention, that's, that was kind of like our model after so many weeks of being, um, you know, just, just treated badly and not taking, like you said, that care piece, there was lack of care. Right. Right. So where are you all on your journey now? How is your son? Um, Where are you? Where are you all now? So um, we we are we were just talking about that this morning. We are uh, just so blessed, so 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 blessed. We think about, and I'll send you guys a picture. Him being completely mummified and like him smiling now and cooing and kicking. It's just, it's literally, you know, surreal, (laughs) for lack of a better word. Um, We take every day. I take every day for that day. Very, very grateful. Um, he came home on eight different medicines. He's on zero now. Um, again, in that, in that journey of we push back, we're gonna, this is going to be his last dose since you can't okay. tell me why we're still taking this. We said things like that. And so um, we, we brought in a, we've brought in a lot of energy work. So he still sees energy therapy. He sees somatic um, he sees the acupuncture, he sees feeding therapy, and he sees occupational therapy for his tongue. And so that's kind of our world. It seems like a lot, but it's really, I guess maybe we're used to it. It's really not. Yeah. Um, but he is still a G2 baby, so he is fed the G2. Um, he, pure, he takes purees by mouth, but the biggest thing is that suck is weak. And so through my research, because I'm a research like fanatic, yeah. I've learned that it's very common for babies in the NICU to come out with a G2. It's just mm. very common. They were already getting fed um, through tubes. And so they just get the surgery. And so we believe that this is a effect of that particular thing. And so that's our last thing. Once we, everything else he's healed from, there's no seizure. That was the initial thing that he's had a seizure where his heart stopped from that. Um, no seizures. Um, no, uh, um, High heart rates, we experienced that as well. And so no medicines, um, all just natural energy works. Um, every day, every morning, uh, I do a full body massage for him. And I just speak over him every single morning for 15 minutes. Um, pray over him. 
thank God, just give them back to God. And that's really, that's really freeing. You know, that yeah. he's not mine. You know, thank you for trusting me mm-hmm. with, with this, this beautiful being. Um, and then also just making time for ourselves. So my mom right. comes up, that's like super important. So she comes up once a month, um, one weekend out the month, which is, that's great. That's a lot for me. Um, so we get to go out and, and do things because he's a lot more independent than they ever let us imagine he would be. Mm-hmm. Um, we've never had in-home health care. Uh, so yeah, we, we, we are, we are so much better. So grateful. Um, we both have not still have not went back to traditional work. We've never had a, a, a month where our bills were not paid. Um, he, my husband's contract at the university did end mm-hmm. and, um, he's a full-time artist. So they, he's an artist and they hired him to teach art yeah. and, uh, he's been getting books, shows here and there. We've been able go with him, you know, travel with him to, to different shows around the country. And so it's uh, like, I'm saying it is, it's cool because it's, it's not, it's just a blessing, a blessing. And my son has taught me so much already, taught me so much already. And we, and I always have to remind myself in me, Oh, let me schedule this appointment. And I, and I hear God saying, are you grateful for where he is right now? Mm. Right. Well, let me try to fix it. Well, maybe if I do, are you grateful for who he is right now? You know, mm-hmm. and so that just kind of like makes me just like, okay, you know, I, I love you just like this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's who we are. Wonderful. Yes. Gabrielle, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Any resources, any additional advice, or anything else like from your birth that you may have felt like you left out and you wanted to make sure it was mentioned? Uh, I know when I get off the call, figure out 15 things, but um, (laughs) I don't, I don't think so. Like I said, that biggest thing is if you're in the space of, uh, of, of NICU and nobody plans for it, it's just, I just implore you to do your research and reach out. I've written this story in blogs and moms have emailed me. Um, So even if you have a NICU story, I ask, you know, I implore you to share it um, in some facet. because the first step to change is, is communication, is, is, is having conscious conversations. And um, that, that's pretty much it. Just, just share, be open. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, well, again, thank you. Like, I don't even have enough. We don't even have enough thank yous. Because <laughs> um, uh, it does. It takes courage to share your story. And you know, and yes, and to relive experiences, um, that is a lot. So I hope after this, you give yourself (laughs) some time, um, because we appreciate you, you know, allowing um, others to hold space and be in that space with you by you retelling your story. Yeah. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Birth Stories in Color. To hear this show and other episodes, head to birthstoriesincolor.com.